Good morning. Today the scripture reading is from the first chapter of Romans, verses 18 to 23. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to ECC. Um, I know there's a lot of you who are here for the first time because that's what this first Sunday is uh, so frequently at ECC, and I just want to say welcome. I'm the senior pastor here. My name's Bob Whitaker. You will see and hear from me more than you probably want to, but that's my job. Sorry, I'm here. Uh, it's great to see you back in town, those of you uh, who are returning, those of you brand new, welcome. I also thought it might be a good idea just to, just to real quickly tell you something about us. And there's so many things that could be said about us, ECC. But here's what I want to say. At ECC, we are thoroughly committed to the authority of the Word of God. Absolutely, unequivocally committed to God's Word. And for that reason, routinely, Sunday after Sunday, we not only read Scripture and stand when it's read, but we constantly refer to it. To put it another way, I've got nothing to say apart from this. Otherwise, I just get a new job. We're that committed to the Word of God. Second thing I want to say about us is that we don't have all the answers. Not about the Word of God, not about life, not about spirituality. We don't have it all figured out. But here's what's also true. We're not afraid of the tough questions. And you'll find that out to be true about us. We get, dig into stuff that's difficult. We don't shy away from it. We try to understand, and we do our best to follow. Why? Because we know the grace of God is abundant and free, and He calls us to follow Him even when we don't understand. That's what you call faith. Third, we do all of this in community. We want to create an atmosphere that allows you to embrace the reality that you're not on your own. You can't be on your own as a Christian. You just can't be. You must be in fellowship with other people. It's called the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is not just here at ECC. It's not just scattered all over the world. It's not just present in this particular episode of history. The body of Christ is the eternal church of Jesus Christ. And we want you to be connected to it. Lots of opportunities. Keep your eyes open to uh, those opportunities, and we'd be delighted to plug you in. So let me tell you what happened before a lot of you came back um, 
at the end of the summer. At the end of last year and through the summer, we focused on the book of Acts. We did an overview on the book of Acts. We didn't go into every chapter and every verse, but we hit major themes in the book of Acts. And last week, we wrapped it up. As a matter of fact, the way we wrapped up the book of Acts last week is I used Philippians uh, chapter 1, especially verse 21, where Paul says, my perspective on everything that has happened and will happen is this. Paul's a big figure in the book of Acts. He says, here's my perspective on life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what it's all about. So my recommendation, my admonition to myself and to you was to live like that last week. To live in such a way that the tyranny of self, which is always present in our reality, isn't it? That the tyranny of self was smashed by the presence of Christ. So we were living for Christ all the time, not living for self. And it's a very freeing thing to do. But let's be honest, it's hard, really hard. And I tried it this week. I tried really hard. And you should not ask my wife whether or not I accomplished my goal. It's not a good thing to do. No, really, I tried very hard, but I ran into a story this week that reminded me of what the week was kind of like. It's a story about two little boys who were waiting for their mother to finish the pancakes on the griddle. They were seated at the table, and they began to argue over who was going to get the first pancake. And the mother decided she could find a spiritual moment here, so she said to the two boys, Ryan and Kevin, look, boys, do you know what Jesus would say if he was at this table? They're like, oh boy, you know, at least that's what I would have said. She said, Jesus would have said, you give the first pancake to my brother. They stopped for a second, then Ryan looked at his brother Kevin and said, Kevin, you be Jesus. (laughs) So, so... Time after time this week, I'm thinking to myself, you follow my advice. (laughs) Make Christ the center of your life. And I'm not thinking about it for myself, but that's the way we are, isn't it? And that's why it's so important to take admonitions from the Scripture and try to make them the mantra for the week. So keep that one up. Even if you weren't here last week, you might want to focus on it. So we're starting a new series today. The new series actually comes from the book of Romans. Actually, it's kind of sequential. Acts, Romans, we didn't pick it for that reason. And you'll notice that this title up here actually introduces the first four sermons. Too much and not enough. Now, I think there's going to be a slide next week that outlines four sermons in a row. But even though it's not there, I'm going to tell you what they are. And here it is. It's the first three chapters of the book of Romans. This is the way we broke it down. Today, the title is... All of us have enough of this, colon, knowledge. I'll get to that in a minute. Second sermon, all of us have too much of this, colon, sin. Third sermon, all of us have or don't have enough of this. All of us don't have enough of this, colon, righteousness. And the fourth sermon, done by Josiah, our college pastor, that title is, Nobody Saw This Coming, colon, Grace. That's our summary of the first three chapters 
of the book of Romans. Starting off with chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and going through 23, man, that is a tough way to start. Did you notice what the first words of the chapter was? The wrath of God. Man, welcome back to school, right? Uh, after I got this sermon all prepared, and man, it took a long time because, well, it was hard. I thought to myself, Bob, why did you do that? Why didn't you start at the beginning of chapter 1 and not jump in at verse 18? But it's too late to answer that question. We'll go back to 1 through 17 later, and there's a reason for that. But you know what 1 through 17 basically says? It basically says this. Paul says, I want you people to know something. Here's what I want you to know. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You know why? Because the good news concerning Jesus Christ is not just for the Jews. Because primarily the people reading the book of Romans were Jews. And they expected the good news was for them. It's the Messiah of God. He says, it's not just for the Jews because I'm not ashamed of that gospel. It's for everybody. Basically, he says, the Greeks are the Gentiles, which means everybody. So he starts out with the good news. That is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the whole world. And then in verse 8, he makes a quick switch. And he says, but now the bad news. Here's the bad news. The wrath of God is being revealed on all humanity. All those people for whom the good news applies, they are under the wrath of God. Well, when you think about this passage, it starts out kind of rough. But I think there's light at the end of it. If you think about this passage and divide it up into three words, you can follow it this way. First, wrath. It's real. Second, knowledge. We've got enough of it. Third, choice. Now what do we do with the knowledge? First, wrath. It's hard to start that way. Nobody wants to talk about wrath. Everybody wants to talk about the grace and the love of God. I included. Paul starts out by talking about the wrath of God. Why is it so hard for us to understand or embrace the wrath of God? Why do we just recoil against it? You know, one of the reasons we do is because of the era that we live in. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. When the people who first read Romans heard the wrath of God, they, got, they had no trouble with it. Because the ancients routinely understood God in terms of wrath. God's wrath was poured out. God was punishing people. You were putting up sacrifices to stay alive. It goes on and on and on. The Greek gods were uh, capricious. They were vindictive. They were self-centered. They were worse than the human beings that they governed. Right? And they were wrathful. And people got that. And the ancient gods were wrathful too. So when you talked about the wrath of God to an ancient culture, they'd say, yeah, I'll tell us something new. You talk about the wrath of God to a contemporary culture like ours, we immediately say, oh, wait a minute. Don't like that. I want a God of love. It's a reaction that's embedded in our culture. And I think that's why it's hard for us to hear. 
Now, we could dismiss the wrath of God and say it doesn't exist. That would be a mistake. First, because the Bible says it does exist. And second, because we know it. Don't we? We know that a God of love and mercy and grace distributes love and mercy and grace because there is something to be wrathful about, namely sin. So what about the wrath of God? You can understand the wrath of God broadly in two different ways, and both of them I believe to be true. The first way you understand the wrath of God is what I'll call a proactive or even apocalyptic way right? God proactively strikes against humanity. And you see that throughout the, New, the Old Testament frequently, or at least those are the stories we remember. God strikes, He rains down fire, He opens up the earth, catastrophic events attributed to the God of the universe. That's proactive. But there's also a, a sort of apocalyptic nature to the wrath of God. Even though Jesus Christ demonstrates a God of love and, mu- and mercy and grace, Jesus Christ is shown to us in an absolutely different light in the book of Revelation. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God, which died on our behalf, becomes the Lamb whose robe is dripped in blood and so is a sword. And he comes on the apocalyptic day of judgment and he judges all sin and unrighteousness and Satan And that's the apocalyptic, proactive wrath of God. There's another way to view the wrath of God. It's not contrary to the first, but it is important. The other way of viewing the wrath of God is the natural consequences of sin. I want to suggest that Paul believes in both. But here's what I want to tell you. He's not talking about the first in this passage. He's not talking about the proactive, apocalyptic wrath of God here. He's primarily talking about the natural consequences of our stupidity. He's talking about the natural consequences of our sin. And that's why he begins the way he does. He says, in effect... You have been given knowledge, all you people, not just Jews, but Greeks and everybody. You've been given enough knowledge to be accountable. And the wrath of God is being poured out upon those who are walking away from the knowledge of God. What is that wrath that's poured out upon people who are walking away from the knowledge of God? The wrath of their own sin. Paul says, look, it was plain from the creation, that God existed. His invisible attributes are reflected in the universe itself. You can see that. You intuitively know that. Every one of you has an impulse deep within his or her being that God exists and God is reflected in the grandeur of this universe. Now you might say to yourself, well, I don't know too many people who believe that anymore. That's not the point. That's what Paul was saying. He basically was saying everybody was born with it. Everybody was born with enough knowledge concerning the existence of God. And what happens, he says, with that knowledge? One of two things. And here's the word choice. 
You either choose to pursue the knowledge that you have of God or you choose to reject it and walk away from it. And what happens when you make the choice to reject it and walk away from it? You become dumber and dumber and dumber. No pun intended for dumb and dumber movies. In other words, you become more and more and more foolish. The further you walk away from the natural revelation that everybody has, the more foolish you become. And Paul says, historically, let me play that out for you. Here's what happened. When people walked away from the knowledge of God, they became foolish. As a matter of fact, whatever wisdom they had was turned upside down. And before it was all over, they began to worship the creature rather than the Creator. They began to craft images that looked like themselves. Now think about the foolishness of it. The grandeur of the universe which reflects the majesty and power of God and you turn to an object that you create that looks like you and that you can control and has no power over you. You have exclusive power over it. You create an idol in your own image. How foolish is that, Paul says? That's because people walked away from the knowledge that was there. And they became foolish. But he goes on. It gets worse, he says. Not only do they create images that look like themselves and call them God's powerless images, they begin to create images that look like animals. And they worship them. On a lower created order, shall we say, in the creation than human beings. Non-sentient beings are represented in animal carvings and they bow down and worship them. How foolish is that, says Paul. It's all the result of turning away from the knowledge that is deep within you. By the way, um, the Israelites in uh, ancient Israel, they knew a lot about other gods. And the primary admonition from Yahweh God is don't go towards the idols because they're foolish and destructive and they will be harmful to you. Worship God, Yahweh, and Yahweh alone. You know one of the interesting uh, examples of another God for the Israelites was the God of the Philistines. They had more than one. You know what one of their gods was? The fly. Seriously, the fly. Can you think of a more despicable part of creation than a fly? It lands on stuff that I won't describe, and then it finds its way to your food. It lands on stuff that is absolutely repulsive, then it finds its way to raw meat and creates maggots. That's their God. You see what Paul's doing? He said, are you kidding me? The universe, it reveals the mighty power of God. You got it right before you. You know it's there. It's deep within you. And when you turn away from it, you become that stupid. Basically, that's the summary of what Paul says. In verses 1 through, uh, verses 18 through 21. And 23 to be exact. Now here's some things I think are important for us to consider about Paul's story. The first thing is this. Paul is not suggesting that just because God is invisible 
that God is also unknowable. He's suggesting the exact opposite. As a matter of fact, back to the ancients. One thing the ancients didn't have too much trouble embracing is this notion. That the highest order of ideas, the highest level of thinking, is not the level of thinking that relates to the five senses. The highest level of thinking is ideas concerning the invisible. Now, we might react to that. We are very tactile people. We want proof of everything. We try to prove it by science and all kinds of other methods. But my friends, the reality is this. What Paul is suggesting is still true. And what the ancients knew to be true is still true. The highest order of thinking is not the order of thinking related to the natural senses, the five senses. The highest order of thinking is thinking about invisible things. It's not inferior at all. We know this intuitively in our world because we understand the principles of things like microbiology, germs. Can you see them? Well, maybe under a microscope. Do you see them before you ingest them? No, or you wouldn't ingest them. These invisible qualities called microorganisms rule our world in a natural sense. And they're not a part of the five senses. We see it in astrophysics, don't we? The reality of our world, our universe, our out there universe is so far beyond the senses that we have to use exceedingly high advanced mathematics and science to even reach it. Or to put it another way, the most powerful elements of our universe are invisible to our natural eyes. It's a higher level of thinking. We see it in multiple ways. A practical one, if you're a pilot, or if you're not, you better have a pilot like this who doesn't trust his five senses, but yields himself to the authority of instruments that sense an invisible reality that he cannot perceive. If he or she as a pilot doesn't entrust to himself or herself that invisible reality that they cannot see, you're in danger because the five senses will frequently lead you astray. So when we consider the notion of God and knowledge of God, it's not inferior to the knowledge that we gain from our five senses. As a matter of fact, it's a higher sort of order. It's above the material, right? It's out there. It's an order above things themselves. That's the real order of things. That's the real being. That's the real nature. It's out there. You can't see it. You can't touch it. But it's absolutely real. So too is knowledge concerning God and faith in an invisible God. Second thing to consider is this, and this is very practical. And most of your students, so you know what I mean, if you don't Please hear me. 
you are living in one of the most dangerous towns in America. I don't mean because there are people wielding guns or because we have acts of terrorism on our streets all the time. What I mean is this. We live in a place of high advanced knowledge. Very advanced knowledge. And every day from the shadow of that university, we are understanding things about the order of the world that were inconceivable to previous minds. Concerning ourselves, our minds, concerning our bodies, biology, concerning the universe, astronomy, we're learning things that are mind-boggling. And in the context of this university town, you can very quickly become wholly reliant on the knowledge of the five senses, shall I say, the knowledge that you can study and you can somehow grasp. And before it's all over, you are inclined to believe that whatever it is that you study is the ultimate explanation of life itself. That's just the reality of our world that we live in in this place. The more we learn frequently, the less inclined we are to bow our knee to an invisible creator because we know so much and we can explain reality. My friends, you're, you're in a dangerous place, okay? And I love this place. That's not a criticism. It's a description. I love this place because knowledge, truth, is the subject matter and extension of the reality of God. And I encourage you to pursue every ounce of knowledge you can, but to submit to the Creator of all truth. See, the accumulation of knowledge has basically two responses. You can either bow the knee to the Creator, or you can suggest that your knowledge is stacking up to a materialistic universe that has all its answers within itself. That's basically your two choices. You know, if uh, the Apostle Paul were with us today, you know, he did like, you know, a back to the future thing, and he, bzzz, he was right here. His mind would be just exploding. He would just be amazed. I mean, he might have known, but I doubt he even knew this. That there are 10,000 points of life, light in the natural universe. When you look into the stars on the clearest of nights in the desert, you could theoretically count 10,000 points of light. He might have known that. What he didn't know, what he reflected on the incredible transcendence of the universe and connected it to God, he didn't know that one galaxy contains billions of stars. What he didn't know is that our galaxy alone contains 200 billion stars. What he didn't know is that the span of a typical galaxy 
is 600 trillion miles across. What he didn't know is that the distance between galaxies is estimated to be 20 million trillion miles. What he didn't know is that light moves at 186 miles per second. To put it another way, 6 trillion miles an hour. What he didn't know is that the galaxies that are out there that look absolutely stable and permanent are not static. They're moving away from one another at a rate of 100 million miles per hour. Here's what he did know. He looked at the creation, and with the knowledge he had, he said, Oh my God, I worship you. The grandeur of the majesty of this world is held together by an imminent and transcendent and loving God. We know some of those things now. You know, it could drive us to arrogance and pride. If it did, we'd become more and more foolish. Or it could drive us to our knees to worship the living God who's the creator of all things. Well, I don't have to tell you what I think the best option is. As a matter of fact, the best option is this. Seek knowledge with every ounce of your being. And as you seek it, while you seek it, and when you finish seeking it in the classroom or studying for a test, fall to your knees and give thanks to the omniscient God of the universe from which all knowledge comes. And then, when you do that, you will receive wisdom. The wisdom of God and not the foolishness of man. That's worship. That's what we're called to. That is a meaningful life. In fact, Jesus might say, it's life itself. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you have been so gracious to us. We acknowledge you in prayer frequently as the Lord of the universe. And though we, we say it and we believe it, Lord, we hardly know what it means. We know it means you're sovereign, but we don't know the details. We know it means you're creator, but there's so many unanswered questions about how you did it. We know your sustainer, Lord. We believe that. But the re invisible reality of your sustaining power and grace, which is all around us, is a mystery that we just sink into. And for it, we give you praise. 
Lord, let our hearts be hearts of worship as we encounter the mysteries of the universe, as we encounter the ever-exploding vast reigns of knowledge. May it drive us to our knees. May we worship you. May we thank you for redemption. And because of that, may we receive the very wisdom of God. We thank you for this in the name of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.